Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 424 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Stowaways, and We Lost Gibson. Continuing from last time with the third Skylab crew still in the command module. The next day, after a night's sleep, Bill Pogue felt better from his vomiting incident, but he decided to still restrict his movements. Upon entering the station, the crew found a note on the teleprinter from Mission Control left by Bean's crew at the end of their second visit. The note read, Jerry Ed Bill, Welcome to Skylab. We hope you enjoy your stay. We are looking forward to several months of interesting and productive work. Signed, Flight Control. The new crew of the Skylab next found three stowaways when they activated the station. Three figures wearing the unmistakable brown Skylab flight suits were waiting for them. The figures actually were just three flight suits stuffed with spare clothing left by the previous crew. One was on the bicycle ergometer. Another was on the lower body negative pressure device. And the third was sitting on the toilet in the waste management compartment. Ed Gibson said, quote, Because we were really rushed at the beginning, we left the dummies where they were for quite a while. Every time I was down there, I felt them staring at me, inspecting everything I did, but not lifting a hand to help. Eerie. The crew eventually moved the stowaways to the upper dome of the station, As a response to the events of the previous days, the vomit bag scandal, nothing was said so it could not be recorded. Carr recalled, When we arrived, we found three dummies that had been packed and put there by the previous dummies. It was quite a surprise to roll down through the tunnel and come across three other people in the spacecraft that we were not expecting, end quote. 
In addition to activating the station, the crew was also assigned maintenance tasks and additional medical experience to perform in the first few days, which further challenged them. Carr and Gibson took over some of Pogue's duties for the first few days on the station while he handled the lighter task of his colleagues. Although the nausea was starting to subside, the effects of the vomit bag scandal put a strain on the first few weeks on board as the crew rushed to activate the station and begin work almost at the pace of the previous crew's departure. Jerry Carr recalled, quote, Bill and I decided to change jobs because my job was a little more sedentary than his. So we swapped checklists and went on. Bill was able to stay quiet and get my work done while I did his. It worked out well for the next couple of days. When Bill got to feeling a little funny, we would swap jobs. But for the most part, Bill was able to pick up and carry his load without any trouble at all. End quote. Carr still chastised himself for allowing the vomiting issue to get out of hand. In his personal diary, he reflected on how the ground had caught the crew on the audio tapes and that Shepard had given them a slap on the wrist. He also reflected that his lack of rapport with the ground and his attempt to work too hard to improve matters did not help. He concluded that it was indeed a foolish decision and that he should have known better. All it had accomplished was to discredit his crew, which hurt. By the fourth day, Pogue was feeling much better and had successfully recharged the primary coolant loop, allowing the first EVA to proceed as planned. However, before the EVA could begin, Carr informed Mission Control that the number of tasks in the flight plan would need to be reduced in order to catch up and stow everything away. Back on Earth, the ground crew was pleased to have a crew back on the station, even though it was the last mission. They knew that work would begin as soon as the activation was completed. The three crewmen quickly realized that setting up the orbital workstation was more complicated than they thought. They were constantly working to complete their task on time, and Houston was constantly interrupting them to monitor their progress. Carr said that the first few days had been so busy that he had not had time to look out the window. It felt like a fire drill from the moment they arrived. Carr informed Mission Control that the number of tasks in the flight plan would need to be reduced in order to catch up and stow everything away. Gibson recalled, During those initial days, there was a real adaptation to zero gravity that had to take place. When launched, we were literally thrust into a whole new environment. When I looked in the mirror, a pumpkin looked back. A round redhead with bright red eyeballs. No longer countered by gravity, my heart and arteries continued to ram blood upwards toward my head. 
It felt like I was lying down back here on earth with my feet a little over my head. But after a few days, I lost almost three pounds of water, as did Jerry and Bill. Jerry and I then felt pretty good, but Bill continued to suffer. After working hard to become efficient, it all started to seem so easy, so effortless from a physical standpoint. That's because one of the real problems with the stresses of spaceflight is that there were none. With no gravity to work against, our muscles weakened. If we did not exercise enough, our bones slowly lost calcium and also weakened, just like bedridden patients down on Earth. But we had learned what exercises to do from the previous cruise, and we lengthened our workout durations 50% above those of Skylab's second crew. We wanted to not only walk out of the command module at the end of the flight under our own power, we wanted to be in better condition than the previous crew, even though we would be in zero gravity over 40% longer. We dedicated ourselves to that goal and continued to aggressively pursue it through strenuous workouts throughout the full duration of the mission. End quote. As I said before, ground control decreased the pressure in Skylab to a very low level between missions. They then increased the pressure to provide a pure, clean atmosphere. Bill Pogue recalled the feeling, quote, I recollect that when I first entered Skylab, my impression was, boy, it's cold in here. But it felt really good, especially after having the nausea event the day before. Of course, I also knew it was going to be big. But after entering, I felt, this really is big. Our immediate problem on entry into Skylab was trying to find all the right books and other things that we had to use. We worked till about 10.30 p.m. Houston time that first day, just trying to get caught up, end quote. Journalists questioned NASA about whether the vomit bag incident indicated a serious breakdown in the open and honest communication between the crew and the controllers. However, this was not the case. In fact, Later analysis of the air-to-ground transcripts revealed that the crew was very open in their use of the B channels during debriefings for the rest of the mission. The astronauts were aware that their comments on Vox on Channel A were being recorded, so they were careful about what they said. Even the Channel B tapes were later made public so the crew knew that any critical comments they made about the hardware, procedures, or activities could be misunderstood or taken out of context. Reactivation of the space station was soon accomplished, and the men explored their home in space. Some motion sickness was experienced during their first week aboard Skylab, but the men quickly adjusted to the new environment and demonstrated their ability to move about in the weightlessness of space flight. 
The large size of Skylab created a situation never encountered before on a space mission. Gibson related this story. Quote, Skylab was so large that they actually lost me one morning. Skylab had many different compartments, and I was in the orbital workshop trying to find some of the old procedures that the previous crew had left. I was buried deep down behind the freezers where they had stowed most of the previous mission data. When Jerry and Bill started looking for me, they just glanced in the workshop and didn't see a soul. Then they looked outside and said, Hey, the command module's still here. The hatch is not open. Guess he has not left. So then where is he? When I finally floated into view, they said, Where the heck have you been? So, it was possible to get lost in Skylab. End quote. Furthermore, the use of the same spacecraft by multiple crews led to issues. Items were misplaced or entirely lost, making it more difficult for each subsequent crew to operate. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, Skylab gave our nation its first experience with long-duration space flights and large spacecraft. It had an internal volume of 12,500 cubic feet, the volume of a three-bedroom house. The huge forward compartment was 21 feet in diameter and over 25 feet high. This spacious volume Numerous storage lockers and our longer missions led to some problems we had not encountered before. Some were amusing, but others were downright aggravating. Floating through the forward hatch of the forward compartment, I saw Ed floating a few feet off the grid floor 25 feet below and obviously out of reach of any handholds or other structure. I lunged toward him, gave him a shove, and like two billiard balls, we went flying off in different directions toward the walls where we could grab something. We were both laughing as we went back to work. In other instances, the multiplicity of lockers and storage locations led to frustrating problems and delays. One evening, my flight activity message for the next day directed me to recharge the fluid level in a water loop used to cool an electronics package. The job looked simple. Get a couple of tools, a flashlight, to observe the accumulator and a long hose that stretched from our water tanks to the work site, and then follow the procedure and restow everything. A piece of cake. Well, not quite. The hose wasn't where it was supposed to be. No problem. I'll just call ground and get some help. But it would be another 20 minutes before I could call Houston because there were no relay satellites back in 73. I started looking in lockers adjacent to the one designated in the procedure and anywhere else that seemed like a logical place to stash it. But it was all to no avail. 
At the next acquisition of Signal, I explained the problem and asked if they could get in touch with Jack Lousman to see if he could remember where he put it after the last use. Jack is a highly disciplined individual, and I was confident he could tell me right where to find it. Jack was busy mowing the lawn at his home in Friendswood, a few miles from JSC, when he got a call from Mission Control. He wiped some sweat off his brow and said he did remember using it, but if it wasn't in the designated stowage location, he didn't have the foggiest notion of where it might be. When I learned that Jack could not help, I really felt defeated. However, Capcom had an alternative approach and told me where I could get two shorter hoses to connect together that would span the distance. I did it, it worked, and I was able to finish the servicing task, exceeding allotted time by only a factor of five. Incidentally, I never found the hose. We had a stowage book which was generously cross-referenced, but the book only told us where an item was supposed to be. We lost other items, some of which eventually did turn up. One day, when I whirled around to get a camera to take a picture of Hawaii, my eyeglasses flew off. I heard them bouncing around through the experiment compartment as I was taking the picture. But when I went to get them, they were gone. Three days later, Ed found them floating near the ceiling in his sleep compartment. Frequently, our tableware, usually a knife, would get knocked off the magnetized surface on our food trays and get caught in the airflow, which gently wafted it to the intake screen of the air duct system. It would hover there on the surface until retrieved. The screen became our lost and found department and the first place we looked whenever something was missing. End quote. The large volume also provided some interesting opportunities. Ed Gibson said, quote, One night I could not resist the temptation of Skylab's large open volume and I tried sleeping out there, floating completely free. It was the ultimate in relaxation. No pressures on your body whatsoever. Once I relaxed, my knees would bend slightly, and my arms would float out straight, just like the position I had assumed floating in the water many times on Earth. After a few minutes, I would drift off into a nice, relaxing, quiet, Whack! I had drifted into a wall that jarred me awake. During all subsequent tries, I remained poised, just wondering when, where, and what I would hit again. It just did not work. Once I even ended up on the air intake screens in the orbital workstation, our lost and found apartment that usually rounded up considerably smaller objects. Eventually, I discovered that all I had to do was to slip an arm or leg under a bungee cord and I could drift right off to sleep.
Sleeping turned out not to be difficult at all without gravity in our sacks, especially early in the flight when we all were exhausted. If we did have trouble turning off because we worked right up to the time we floated into our sacks, reading was usually a good sleep aid. This situation was about the only time we did pull out a book. Time and space was too valuable to use for things we could do on the ground. A sentiment previously stated by Owen on the second crew. The 15 sunrises and sunsets a day that we experience could present a problem when trying to turn off and go to sleep. If you made the mistake of sneaking out of the sack to look out the window, you might see China at high noon and then have the difficulty of convincing your mind and body that it really was time to sleep. Also, early in the mission, if you were clumsy in your sneaking, the guys watching Skylab's rate gyros on the ground could tell you were up and might just call up and ask you to do just one more thing. Later in the mission, those one more things got ruled out. End quote. Despite their best effort, however, the crew began to run into what would become the second major problem of their stay on Skylab. Carr recalled, quote, The schedule caught up with us. We found that we had allowed ourselves to be scheduled on a daily schedule that was extremely dense. If you missed something, if you made a mistake and had to go back and do it again, or if you were slow in doing something, you would end up racing the clock and making more mistakes, screwing up more on an experiment, and in general, just digging a deeper hole for yourself. The schedule was tight, and we were hustling each and every minute just trying to meet it. That went on for many, many days. It was hard on morale, we were rushed and not able to get things done and experiments completed. We knew we were just sure that the experimenters on the ground were grinding their teeth when we had to report. Well, I did not get your experiment done because in my rush I put the wrong filter in or I made another error. We found that it was almost to the point where you had to schedule time to go to the bathroom. Then we discovered that we had been scheduled at nearly the same rate that the second crew had achieved at the end of their flight. That explained why we were having so much trouble keeping up. But by the time that was finally recognized, we had achieved a skill level that was adequate to get the work done. After the first few days, we realized that eating three meals together was not an efficient use of time. However, we did have dinner together so that we would make sure we were functioning as a cohesive crew. And we each also needed that bit of social contact. It turned out to be a great decision. But after dinner, we would go right back to the experiments and work till probably 9 o'clock at night when it would be time to wind down and go to bed. 
So at 10 o'clock, when we were supposed to be in bed, none of us were really ready to go to sleep because we still had things to pick up and put away and other things to do. Our minds were still moving too fast to rest. So we just were not getting the right kind of rest and the right kind of leisure time that would allow us to do things right. Finally, we begin to get a little bit testy. In order to make up time on some of the experiments to account for some of our fluffs, they had to be redoubled efforts to tighten the schedule even more. They were juggling our exercise around, and we ended up in several cases having to exercise right after a meal. That's no time to be exercising, particularly up there where you couldn't belch because with food floating around inside you, you were liable to get it back when you belch. So we started grousing at them about that. They were working hard trying to keep us up with the schedule. We were giving them a hard time and they were giving us a hard time. Finally, we reached a point in the mission when we just had to take a day off. We had set up a rest day week with the 10th day as a day off when we could do what we wanted. That was also to be the day when we could take a shower in our makeshift shower. But we gave back our first two or three days off. We said, go ahead and schedule us, and we will do some makeup work. Well, we got to the point where our morale was low. We were feeling lousy, and we were really getting drained. So we said, Let's take our day off and get a good day's rest. It'll get us back in good shape again, and we can begin to maintain the pace. So we took our day off and did what we wanted to do. We each took a shower. Bill and I did some reading, looking out the window, earth observations, photography, and other things. Ed worked on his own schedule at the... Apollo telescope mount panel, did some relatively simple experiments and made some ad-lib observations. We had a good day. Though we did not understand it at the time, Ed Gibson said, we and the mission control were about to learn some valuable lessons for the future. Lessons that had to be learned sometime and each of us playing our respective roles were the unsuspecting students. We found it disheartening to be in a situation where you could never catch up. It is only a question of how far you are behind. We just pushed the buttons as fast as we could and moved on to the next. We were not used to working in that mode, and we did not plan on it being that way. An image of my high school track coach flashed into my mind. With a wide grin, he gave me a tip. If you want to win the quarter-mile race, sprint the first hundred yards, then just gradually increase your pace. Thanks for that bit of wisdom, coach. And that is exactly what we were trying to do here. Early in the mission, we used our time at night and other open times to work to catch up.
Later on, I used these times to perform ad hoc experiments, such as the study of fluids in zero gravity, or when several open hours appeared, I'd go to my favorite spot, the Apollo Telescope Mount Control Panel, where there was no end to the challenges and opportunities to learn and contribute. I remember these open times the most, times when I had a chance to use some creativity. The rush to continually catch up is remembered as just a blur. Of course, our rush paced caused mistakes, and I still chuckle about one of them. The televising of an experiment or other event, the switch to turn on the video tape recorder was not controlled by the camera, but located in the multiple docking adapter, which was usually far from the subject that we were televising. More than once, and always in a rush, I got the subject all nicely propped, the mic and the camera turned on, and started to record, or so I thought. Eventually, when I would realize that the video recorder was not on, I would drop everything and streak into the multiple docking adapter, muttering some rather creative profanities as I went. All too late, I also realized the voice recording was on. Oops, sorry ground. The situation was compounded a bit because people had not yet fully come to grips with the fact that Skylab was a different animal than all the relatively short missions to date. As in ascent, re-entry, EVA, or hazardous aircraft operations which preceded spaceflight, it was absolutely essential that nominal and malfunction procedures be spelled out in detail, simulated with fidelity, then followed precisely. It's a mindset that keeps people alive. However, once the hazardous operations give way to a normal day-to-day type of operation, like we usually experience here on Earth, it's time to back off the rigid specification of every action, set goals and objectives, and let the people on the spot use their intelligence to perform to the best of their abilities. Because of everybody's heritage and lifelong conditioning, It was a tough mindset to break. As we began to get behind early in our flight, Mission Control, God love them, tried to help us as best they could in the only way they knew how. Plan to the hilt and specify the procedures in detail. One morning, we got a teleprinter message enumerating that day's activities that stretched from the command module down to the trash airlock, a distance of 65 feet. We wanted to be given some latitude in how we applied the brush strokes to the canvas. Mission Control, in their sincere efforts to help us, wanted us to continue painting by the numbers and in areas of ever-decreasing size. I believe another contributing factor was that we lacked adequate integrated training with the mission control team. This team and ourselves never really understood what the other was thinking and planning before launch. 
Usually, integrated training is done as much to train mission control as the crew, but they had been through it all with the first two missions and were not eager to revisit that demanding boredom more than absolutely necessary. So when they came to us with a set of procedures, we simply said, you've been through it all before and we haven't, so we'll just do it. But that did not allow us to develop much interaction, communication, and a real rapport with the mission control team before we reached Skylab. This lack of flight experience and the time crunch led us to just accept almost all suggestions presented to us without question or resistance, even when it really would have been appropriate. Lastly, the situation was further compounded by lack of open communication after liftoff. You could not just call down and say, Hey guys, let's talk this out because everything had to be open for the whole world to hear, including the sensationalism-seeking press. So we thought, okay, we'll just work through it. But that stoic approach did not work. End quote. And I would like to credit that long quote and all the astronaut quotes to Homesteading Space by David Hitt. Next time we will have Mission Control's response. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 424 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 4, Stowaways and We Lost Gibson. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, October 21st. We have a lot going on in our personal life, so I moved it the release date out another day. Uh, if I can, I'll get it to you on Friday. But uh, if you want to find out what's going on, you can listen to the personal section down below. If you would like to be notified by email... When new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to my blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 243 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You'll have to put in the word archive or it may not find it, okay? Put that archive in there. That reminds me, I got an email from Google saying that the Google podcast is going away next year. I said the end of the, this year, I think it's gonna they're going to do away with Google podcast. So if you are retrieving the feeds off of Google Podcast, I suggest 
that you get another podcatcher, such as Spotify or something. Or if you can do it with Apple, you can do it with uh, Apple. I, it used to be called iTunes. I'm not sure what it's called now. Apple Music, that's what it's called, I think, or something like that. But uh, Google Podcast is going away. So that's the way the cookie crumbles, I guess. I'll probably lose all of the listeners there, which is not going to be good. But if you can, find you another podcatcher. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at SpaceRocketHist. And you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash spacerockethistory. As always, I had a few afterthoughts. i like to apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, wasn't it good that Pogue was finally feeling better? But Carr was still beating himself up for the vomit bag scandal. He knew that he had really messed up. And it made his team look bad, too. So they were all a little more careful about what they said. It's kind of like living with Alexa or Siri. They're very useful, but sometimes you want to have a private conversation. And you, sometimes you, you think to yourself after you had a conversation, you think, does Alexa hear that? Hmm. I know it's not supposed to be listening until you call out the word Alexa, but sometimes you wonder. Sorry, I don't have an answer for that. Well, if you heard that, <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> Alexa is in the studio. No, I said it again. Anyway, do you feel like we're building up to something? Was mission control pushing a little too hard? When you get a teletype that is 65 feet long (laughs) for the day's activities, is that a bit much? A, a A teletype, you know, those old teletype machines. 65 feet. (laughs) We'll have a little more of the crew's point of view on this issue. And then we'll have Mission Control's point of view next time. Okay, in personal news. Feel free to skip this if you want. But since August 1st, uh, not August 1st, since August, uh, I have taken on a second job the decline in revenue from the podcast and the increase in expenses due to inflation plus a big property tax increase in my county has forced me to seek more revenue i was also concerned that the podcast might not become fiscally sustainable if we continue this downward trend in revenue so I needed to prepare in case that were the case. So I found a school that was hiring, and I took the job. I'm teaching AP Physics, Honors Physics, and Introduction to Programming. All this is at the high school level. 
I didn't realize how much extra time this would take. Now, I knew I had taught physics before, and I wrote programs for a living during parts of my engineering career, so I figured I could handle it without a problem. Well, things don't always go according to plan. I have been spending just about every waking hour, and I'm not kidding, working since the job began. I haven't had a day off since August. But I will tell you, these have been the best behaved kids I've ever taught. I really like working with them, and they are, they are very enjoyable to teach them. I enjoy the teaching part a lot. So that's what's going on with the delayed release dates. Trust me, I'm working as hard as I can all the time. Okay, let's move on. If you're keeping up with my uh, mother-in-law's health, her valve replacement surgery has been scheduled for October 18th. And that's another reason the next episode may be delayed a day. I'll keep you updated on how that goes. In donations, over the past two weeks, we had three new donations. I would like to thank Ron F., who sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Kyle N. from Canada donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. And Mark N. from Florida donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Thank you very much. Now, for Patreon. More bad news. Patreon currently went down to 225 That was a loss of eight. You kind of see my point about the downward trend in revenue. From what I can tell, one person quit and seven had their cards decline, which usually is just due to them expiring. So if you have time and are on recurring payments, we would certainly appreciate your checking the expiration date on your credit card And if it's expired, how about updating that on Patreon? That would be much appreciated. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Checks for 2023, have reached 332, with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So if you are enjoying the podcast that's been running now for over 10 and a half years without commercial interruption and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH Archive Magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Abby Levine. Abby Levine, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks. 
to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First State Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 425 posted on or about October 21st. So long for now.